Well, hello again. And as we come to the end of our series, Creation Calling, I'd like to ask you a question. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about the future of the world? Optimists tend to think that despite all our problems, science and technology will eventually get there with some answers which will make everything okay. Or we will find another planet to go on and live on. Or we will escape physical restraints altogether by artificial intelligence. Pessimists tend to think we're well on the way to destroying ourselves in the process of destroying our planet. Well, there have been plenty of movies made that depict the end of the world by all sorts of methods, whether it's a meteor strike or whether it's the molten core in the earth stopping rotating, whether it's machines taking over and destroying humans or whether it's a new ice age. Or, as in the film 2012... By a solar flare. Well, the Bible has news for both optimists and pessimists. The news for optimists is, well, actually, we are not going to solve all our problems and transform this world without God. Do you notice in all those disaster movies, there's a small handful of survivors who are going to make a better world? but I don't think they're really going to solve all the problems of humanity. And for pessimists, the message is God has made this world and he is in charge. He will decide what happens. He will decide when it ends and he will make a better world. It is important how we think about this issue of the future because it tends to affect how we live. Just think about it. Normally we go from day to day, we kind of expect the same things to happen as have happened before. But if we find out something life-changing, such as that we're going to inherit a fortune or meet the love of our life or be diagnosed with a terminal illness, it changes our thoughts and our actions in the light of that new future. In our look at the Bible so far, we have seen the beginning and the middle of the story of our world. And now it is time to look at the end of the story. And this should be good. You know how uh, when children are little, sometimes if a book or a film gets too tense, they will say, how is it going to end? Is it going to be OK? And you can tell them the end and then they can relax a little. Well, that's what happens with Christians when we look at the rest of the Bible. We're going to look at a passage uh, called 2 Peter chapter 3 and we're going to look at some verses in it where Peter talks about the end of the world with a view to helping his audience think right. If we look at verses 3 to 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3 he says Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter is reminding his hearers and us here that God created the earth and he has before intervened to remake it. In verses 13 and 14, he says that we can look forward to the fact that he will intervene in history again. And for the same reason as he did before, judgment on sin. When Peter talks about fire, he's using Old Testament language for judgment here, not necessarily saying that the earth will burn up, but that God will also then make a new start, a new and permanent start. In Revelations chapter 21 and 22, this is described as an internal life of intimate relationship with God and a new experience of life, which C.S. Lewis described as life in full colour, without pain and without suffering, and a community life without the barriers which divide us. So we can have certainty and hope about our future. It is in God's hands. But verses 8 and 9, he develops his theme about repentance. He says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God is timing his final intervention to allow as many people as possible to recognise their need for God. Although we can look forward to the new world that God is going to make, it's a sobering thought, not very popular and not often stated from the pulpit, but that God only offers forgiveness and new life if we um, ask for it. It's available to us all because of Jesus' death on the cross to take our penalty of sin, but it does not get applied to our life unless we ask for it and recognise our need for it. God wants everyone to do that, as many as possible to go into this new world with him. But we do need to respond to his call for repentance. Thirdly, in verse 19, Paul Peter says that there will be cataclysmic change when this new world comes. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Peter is stressing here that this change is going to be traumatic. There's lots of discussion by theologians about whether this means the world will be totally destroyed and a complete new one created by God or whether this one will be renewed and transformed. Um, a lot of thinkers now go with that second option for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, it's the way that God seems to work through the flood, through the exile and the conquering of Israel when they were unfaithful, when he brought back a faithful remnant to that same land to rebuild it. Um, secondly, because when the New Testament talks of a new heaven and earth, the word kainos is used, not the word neo, meaning something brand new, but a word usually meaning renewed. And 21, uh, Revelation 21 verse 5 talks of God making all things new rather than him making new things. 
And also when you look at what the passages that we saw last week with Cheryl Hunt in Romans and Colossians, it talks there of creation's liberation and having eager expectation for what God will do in the future and of God reconciling all things in heaven and earth to him. That doesn't really tally with the language of complete destruction. And I tend to go with that view myself. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter what God is going to do. The Bible says there's going to be some continuity with our current world, some discontinuity between that older order of things and the new. He's going to deal with his enemies of sin, death and evil. And that will mean some pretty big, unimaginable changes for us in how the world is going to operate in that future. But... Ultimately, that makes no difference to our responsibility to look after the earth until that time. Firstly, like our physical bodies that we've been given by God, we have a responsibility to look after the earth until it is transformed by God into something eternal and glorious. This body that I have here, hard to believe though it is, will one day either be damaged irreparably or it will be overcome by disease, which will shut it down, or it will just run down over time, and it will be no more. But 1 Corinthians 15 says we will be given a new body, a changed body. And that means we still have a responsibility to look after this earthly body, this mortal body that God has given us. And in the same way, we have the same responsibility to look after this mortal earthly uh, place that we live until God redeems it and makes it something eternal and glorious. And secondly, I think it is wrong that some Christians have used this passage in 2 Peter to say that it doesn't matter what happens to the earth. I don't need to act to look after the earth because after all, it's just all going to go one day. That's not what Peter says here in this passage. If you look at verse 11, he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. So rather than religion being the opiate of the people, as Marx said, drugging us into not caring about injustice or exploitation or the lostness of those without Christ, our future hope should stimulate us to action. We are to live our lives in the light of our future reality. Our home on the earth in eternity will be a home for righteousness, where our ethics of how we live will be perfectly in line with God's. And so we need to both prepare for that and signpost it to others. Lord Shaftesbury who in the 19th century was a politician who um, went for, did a lot of social reform, especially to do with child exploitation. He made a comment towards the end of life saying, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of the Lord's return. 
the thought of the new heaven and a new earth made him do more, not less. But what is the place of creation in this future? We'll look briefly at that in the second half of this sermon now. The vision that was given to John when he was in exile for his faith on the Mediterranean island of Patmos is, is, comes to a conclusion in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And at first sight, that vision seems to say very little about the earth and its non-human inhabitants. It's a symbolic picture of God's people and their new life as a city, not a garden, as at the beginning of the Bible. But it's essential for us to know our Old Testament to understand the full picture of what John is trying to describe here. That's why it's so important to read our Old Testament. You really cannot understand the fullness of the New Testament unless you have. So in Revelation chapter 1, John introduces his vision with the talk of a new heaven and earth. That language is taken from the Old Testament prophets. They had visions like in Isaiah 65 of God bringing a new heaven and earth. And that was going to include a reversal of the effects of sin regarding the process of dying and the curse on the earth that will not provide abundance naturally. It also promises that the wild and domesticated aspects of nature will no longer be in conflict with each other but will live harmoniously side by side. And Isaiah 11 links that future with the work of the Messiah, who will bring not only peace to human beings and their relationship with God, but also between wild nature and the human world. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. The Old Testament prophets understood that God's plan included the whole of creation in a way that far exceeds the goodness of the Garden of Eden. It is this understanding which the Jewish New Testament writers use, because they were all Jewish apart from maybe one. And the creation theology of the Old Testament is just assumed rather than described and explained. I have no time to go in really into that anymore, but I want to say one more thing. In Revelation chapter 22, as this vision unfolds for John, uh, there is a river of life. So then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So in the middle of this city of God, which stands for all that is good in human culture and community, is a picture of a river, once again taken from the Old Testament, from the vision that Ezekiel had and which he describes in chapter 47 of that book. 
Now, of course, that picture is a spiritual picture of the refreshing, life-giving Holy Spirit poured out on human beings because of the work of Jesus in opening up a relationship with God. But prophecy operates on many levels and we tend to sometimes spiritualise it and forget the physical dimension. I think that by deliberately using this language from Ezekiel, God is giving John a glimpse of what Richard Borkham calls the natural world renewed with new life from the divine source of all life. Jesus' resurrection made possible new life not just for us, but for our suffering creation. Because, as Borkham goes on to say, whereas mortal life comes from God but runs out in death, eternal life is inseparable from its source in God. So to conclude, we have a triumphant ending to the story of God and the world. It makes us amazed at the scope of Christ's work in creation and salvation for the whole of the created world. And as Christians, we are called to live in the light of the future that he has planned for all things. As part of that renewal and reconciliation in God, we are called to overcome now those things which within our own lives that do not reflect the beauty of our destiny as the bride of Christ. That means selfishness, greed, indifference and hard-heartedness to the groaning and the suffering of the world with which we are so intimately connected. And it also includes a lack of love for the most vulnerable inhabitants who we tread over in our desire for a comfortable life. One day... We will be free from that. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, we can be better than that now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we have no reason to fear the future. The future is in your hands. The future of us and the future of this planet Nothing will happen without your allowing it and your bringing it to pass. But Lord, help us also not to be complacent about the future. Help us to realise the impact our actions are having right now on people in other places in the world and on future generations. And Lord, help us to look after this planet as the temple where you rest, where you reside where you are sustaining all creation, where you are providing for all creation. Lord, help us to, and to live according to our future, not our past. To live as the image bearers of God who steward the earth well. And help us, Lord, to realise that we have a role in the ministry of reconciliation between you and people, between people and people, and between people and the rest of your creation. Help us, Lord, to accept all those roles that you have given us and to live out the gospel in its widest sense, in a way that brings joy, harmony, 
reconciliation and renewal to the world that you love. In Jesus' name. Amen.